And uh, as mentioned, we're in our sermon series on freedom, what it looks like to walk in freedom in Christ, and be spending time in Gospel of Mark. Mark 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, around there. <laughs> so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Mark. We're going to do a little overview of those chapters. Um, the church bells were ringing just up the street from my home, which, I, which indicated that it was supper time. It was 6 p.m., time to go home. Kids dispersed, went to their various homes, except I was in a wrestling match with a kid who was three years older than me. He wasn't much bigger, but he was, he was older and he was stronger. And I must have been like in third grade. He would have been in sixth, I guess. And, uh, and he pinned me to the ground and he wouldn't let me up. And the church chimes were going. The hymns were playing and I was pinned on the ground. I was getting hungry. But he said, I'll let you go if you say two words. I surrender. Well, no way. I'm a competitive guy. I'm not going to surrender. And so I wrestled and squirmed and tried to get him off me, but nothing I couldn't budge him. So finally, after about the long, longest 10 minutes of my life, I finally said, okay, I surrender. And he let me up to freedom. This morning we're talking about freedom in surrender. And uh, it's important to know that it's our, in our human nature to never want to surrender. Uh, we would rather win the argument. We'd want to be victorious. We would want to overpower the other person rather than surrender. Well, our enemy is stronger than us. Satan's stronger than us. And when I speak of surrendering, I'm not speaking of surrendering to our enemy. I'm speaking of surrendering to God, who is much stronger than our enemy. It'd be as if I were being pinned to the ground and um, outside of my cousin's house, and I would say, hey, you may be stronger than me, but my cousin Teddy's stronger than you. Teddy, come and get me. And, and Teddy comes and he pushes this guy off of me, and then I'd be set free by someone who's stronger than him. Well, our Heavenly Father, our Savior, is stronger than Satan. And so we call upon him, we surrender to him. Uh, and we'll be looking uh, at the Gospel of Mark, journey through Mark, starting in chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then two chapters later in chapter 8, I have a typo up there, should be Mark 6. Mark 8, Jesus feeds the 4,000. He does these two miracles. And in chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples, after feeding the 4,000, they hopped into a boat to sail across the sea. And we pick up in 814. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had uh, with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, well, it was because we have no bread. That's why Jesus mentioned yeast. And we're getting kind of hungry. And you idiots, you forgot the leftovers. We only have one loaf. Verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I spoke, when I broke the five loaves and the 5,000 for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve? Uh, That's right. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. So that's right. Do you still not understand? Uh, 
no. <laughs> and then he said, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. And I, I didn't ever quite understand what that was in this account for. I didn't quite understand what Jesus meant either. But the disciples had one thing in mind. They wanted to feed their bellies. They knew that they were heading away from the crowd, maybe to a remote place, and they knew they didn't have enough food. The numbers 12 and 7 are significant in Scripture, obviously. There are 12 months in a year. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 disciples that Jesus chose. Um, and the 7 is a number for a perfect number, a number for God, seven days of week, which is fullness. Uh, there were uh, seven, what, seven... 70 times 7, forgive, that many times, the seven churches in Revelation. But what exactly did Jesus mean by saying, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod? Well, yeast and leaven obviously grew within bread, right? And so it grew and expanded. But in Scripture, yeast and leaven is often used to refer to evil and sin which is growing and expanding and influencing others. It's spreading and penetrating and corrupting others. Watch out for the yeast, the sin. Well, what was the sin of the Pharisees and Herod other than the sin of self-reliance? You know, we're going to govern our own lives. We don't need you, Jesus. We don't need God. We can govern. No, I don't think it was that. I think it was referring to their worldly power, they sought to influence people by their position, by their control over others. The Pharisees, through their religious power, and Herod, through his political power. We're going to control people. We're going to get our way accomplished by controlling people. Jesus warned his disciples against this kind of seeking after worldly power and control over others, represented by the yeast, and reminded them that he was their only source of power that can make things happen. He was what they needed. He is their, was their healer, their protector, their provider. I just fed you and gave you enough leftovers for weeks, and yet you're still not trusting in me, in, in my power, in my provision? Well, this is the theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. And um, how am I sure that it's talking about worldly power that Jesus was referring to? Well, you read the stories that come afterwards and in between these feeding of the uh, four and five thousand. Chapter seven, for example, Jesus heals the deaf and mute man, and he then tells the onlookers, be sure that you don't say anything about this miracle. And yet they disregarded Jesus's command, went out and shared about this amazing thing that just took place. Why would Jesus not want to let others know of the miraculous power of God, the one who healed, the one who did such a great thing? Then right after Jesus fed the 4,000, the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign from heaven. And Jesus responded in chapter 8. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given it. Again, why wouldn't Jesus want to demonstrate the power that he received from his father to verify that he indeed was the Messiah? Why wouldn't he want to give them a sign? I remember being at a Christian festival in the 70s when I was a teenager. It was like a Christian Woodstock for the weekend. And it was amazing with a group of Christian friends and, and there were thousands of people there that would gather to hear uh, Christian bands and speakers. And I remember at this festival one night, 
Uh, it was a glorious night, and you could sense the Spirit of God there. And we were listening to the speaker on the main stage, and the lights were on him, and it was getting dark out. And then at the end of his message, inspirational message, he had us hold hands and look up into heaven and just cry out to God, Lord, please reveal yourself. Give us a sign in the heavens. Let us know that you are here. And so we were so excited. We are so a- anticipating, and we didn't as much as see a majestic bird fly overhead. We didn't see a falling star. We didn't see a formation in the cloud that looked like Jesus. We didn't see anything unless you counted the, the crickets. Maybe that was God speaking to us. There was nothing. And I remember feeling so disappointed that God didn't reveal his majestic power to us, crying out to him. Why didn't he? And why wouldn't he? Verse 22 of chapter 8, next Jesus heals a blind man from Bethsaida. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him outside the village, away from everyone else. And then Jesus healed him there. And then he sent him home after his healing and said, don't go even into your village. Don't go back into the village. Why not? I can see for the first time. Again, Jesus instructs this man to keep his healing silent. Time and time again, be quiet about these things, Jesus said. Why, why so? Because don't you think it was because Jesus knew that if the people were to get a hold of the fact that here's a man that does miracles, he, he's our Messiah, that they would, they would raise him up as their, as their conquering king, as their military warrior to come and, and stomp on uh, Rome, the Roman um, possessors of their land. The Roman leaders, we want you to come and crush, and we're going to rally behind you, Jesus. And you can use your supernatural, miraculous force, and we can take back our, uh, our land finally. But this was not the path that God would choose for his son to fulfill his messianic mission. Rather, God's path for him would look the exact opposite. As a suffering servant, Jesus would demonstrate his power through sacrifice, through surrender, through humility, through serving, through dying to his own rights for the sake of the gospel, by putting others first, by even dying on the cross for even his enemies. This is how God's power is demonstrated through Jesus, which looks exactly opposite of the worldly power that people ascribe to, aspire to, I should say. When we get into arguments, uh, we want to win at all costs. We want our opinion to be known. We want to control the outcome. We want to get our way. And James puts it this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Uh, Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So what do you do? You kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Pastor Erwin uh, McManus, who's a radio preacher, I heard him say this. He said he, he found a path as a pastor to being free as a leader. And this is what he discovered through his experience. He said, I have so much confidence in the reality of Jesus that I feel no pressure to try to make people act or be a certain way. I'm banking everything on the fact that God changes people. 
Let's continue in this stream of thought, chapter 8, verse 27. Peter would be inspired uh, by God to, his eyes would be opened to discern who Jesus was. And he declared, you, Jesus, are the Messiah. You are the Christ. After which Jesus once again warned the disciples not to reveal his identity to anyone. Okay? And then Jesus proceeds to tell them that he would soon suffer, he'd be rejected, and he'd be killed. But how did Peter respond to this news? Well, he said, no, Jesus, you most certainly will not if I have anything to do with this. Then he took Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke Jesus. Peter gave him a piece of his mind, to which Jesus responded. He turned and looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter in turn. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter and the other disciples envisioned a political, religious, military commander to lead the Jews to freedom from Rome. That's what they desired. But this was not the type of power that God would choose for his son, Jesus, nor does he choose it for us as his children. Someone might say, well, Surrender may be the path that God called Jesus to take. After all, he came to die on the cross for us and pay for our sins. But I'm not called to die for anyone, am I? Well, listen to what Jesus told his disciples immediately following. He said in verse 34, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's the kingdom way. If we want to influence others for Christ, we must take up our cross, which means we must give up trying to control others using coercion. We must seek trying to win the argument so that we come out on top. We must... uh, not claim our rights. We must give up exerting power over others. Our power and influence will look altogether different. It'll look like Jesus, who alone could miraculously feed the 5,000 and then the 4,000 and have plenty of leftovers to spare. He takes what little resources we give him, he multiplies them. He alone can heal the deaf and give sight to the blind. He alone can change lives. He alone can change the world that we live in. Jesus' disciples were unable to heal a possessed boy in chapter 9. This possessed boy with an impure spirit. And they wondered why, and so they asked Jesus, why couldn't we heal this kid? And Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer or by prayer and fasting in another gospel. In other words, it doesn't come out by your power. Only God can do such a thing as this. Now, you might be wondering, okay, surrendering to God, well, what does that mean about those who are leaders in our midst, you know, politically or whatever? Surrender to God does not negate the important role of leaders, like our police officers, our military, our judges, our governing officials, They are called and raised up by God to protect us and to provide for us. They're they're called to enforce the law for a nation. And so we must pray for them, according to Romans 13 and such. Leadership 
and authority are not sinful in and of themselves. It is the attitude by which we lead and how we lead. For example, we're all leaders. If we are parents or grandparents, or if we're teachers, or if we're lifeguards at the pool, we're leaders. Yesterday, when Lynn and I were coming back from Nebraska, we stopped at a Dairy Queen, and um, I got one of those free dilly bars because I did the survey, filled it, put it on the bottom of my receipt, handed my receipt into the girl behind the counter, and she took it, and uh, she gave me dilly bar, woohoo! And then she proceeded to tear it in half and, and wad it up like this. I said, "Oh, can I have my receipt?" She said, "No, you may not." Uh, but I, I would, I would just need the top half. No, and then she threw it away. And so I thought, okay. Um, that, that's a type of leadership that I didn't appreciate, the Dairy Queen employee. I, I needed it because we could get reimbursed for these things through our denomination because we're on a denominational trip, right? And so I called over a guy. I said, can you print me out another receipt? And this girl overheard me say that, and she came up and was like, what are you doing there? And I tore off the bottom. And I said, here, you can have the bottom. I'm not going to get another dilly bar. I just needed my receipt because we're on a business trip. Oh, so she exerted her power as an employee in such a way that was worldly rather than Christ-like. And I might say I responded in a very Christ-like way to her. <laughs> My mind was doing something else, and I did not go according to that. Um, so uh, the disciples of Christ and as members of the church, they were called to follow in the path of Jesus. In First Peter, we're told what that looks like. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God to him who judges justly. And I remember a day when a church leader in my f former church that we, we served, uh, we were in the conference room in the back of the sanctuary. That's our conference room. And I remember sitting in the big table there, and we had two guests with us who were serving as, uh, uh, as evangelists during that week. Every night they were speaking, and there were a team of students who did music and such. And I remember a leader barging in during our meeting and just laying into these two guests because they had the gall to put up a book table and on their book table they displayed these authors with whom he disagreed theologically. And so he brought in one of these books, he was shaking it and he was humiliating them by rebuking them in, in, the, in public, you know, in the presence of the staff. And then this leader turned and stormed out of the room, he made his peace. And I remember feeling so shocked and humiliated. I just wanted to stand up and apologize on behalf of the church, and uh, really, we're not all like this here, and, and, you know, but I was even more shocked at how these two evangelists responded. These two pastors, they just gave this man their full attention. They listened, they nodded, they smiled, and as soon as he was done, they looked at us, gave us a smile, and said, okay, no, about tonight. This is our theme, we're going to talk about this. And, um, and then at the end of sharing that, then they, they said they welcomed us out in the sanctuary to kneel at the benches here. We're going, to, we're going to commit this sanctuary to the Lord. And I was so shocked that they didn't try to explain themselves or retaliate or say, what's up with that guy? They did nothing. It just fell off them like water on a, whatever, duck, you know, just 
off like that. And I was just so shocked that they demonstrated what it looked like to lead like Jesus. They were so Christ-like. The surrendered life. Erwin McManus said, I have so much confidence in the reality of Jesus that I feel no pressure to try to make people act or be a certain way. I'm banking everything on the fact that it is God who changes people. So we get to chapter 9, and, uh, and just briefly, in verse 12, the Son of Man must suffer, Jesus said, much, and be rejected. So for the second time, he predicted his death. And then the third time, in verse 30, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and be killed, and after three days will rise again. And as soon as he said that for the third time, then the disciples, they took off, and they started talking. And this is what they talked about. Jesus confronted them. Hey, guys, what were you arguing about when we were traveling on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. They were still enamored with the world's definition of power and leadership. And then sitting down, down Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the last and the servant of all. Get to chapter 10. Jesus once again communicates about his death for a fourth time in much greater detail, after which James and John comes up to Jesus, the knuckleheads, and they make the strategic request that they be placed on Jesus' right and left hand when he comes into power, again, envisioning this political worldly type of reign. They wanted to be second and third in command, if you will. And if that's not enough, when the other turn, uh, other ten heard about these two brothers, they were indignant because they wanted that kind of power as well. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We all have the desire to influence others positively. And we will, but we will only when we adopt the mindset, the attitude, and the um, action of Jesus Christ. Um... The way of Jesus is the way of service. It's the way of laying down our rights. It's the way of putting others before ourselves. It's a way of serving others, even our enemies. Well, what does that have to do with anything in our lives? Well, I don't know if you're aware, but in our country, even in our city, there's power, there's power issues, aren't there? People want their way. We want our rights. We want... We want what we want, and by golly, I want to live, and, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to live according to the truth. Let me lay that straight. But how we display it, and with the attitude with which we display it, makes all the difference in the world. Afghanistan is in the news. There's a mad scramble for power in that country by the te Taliban. Um, and Jim Dennison wrote in his daily article this last week about this. He wrote of an Afghan pastor named David Payman, who was recently interviewed by Christianity Today. 
He was raised by a Muslim leader, an imam, and Paman would make six trips to Mecca to worship Allah. And in one of these last trip that he made, his pilgrimage to Mecca, he was influenced by a Christian man who ended up praying for someone and they saw supernatural healing before his very eyes. And his explanation of this crisis in Afghanistan is different from what we're seeing in the news. When asked what life was like when Christians first entered Afghanistan in 2001, he replied this way. He said, it was false hope. Um, I will never forget in 2001 when the American army came and took over, everyone was celebrating because everyone got freedom and people were praising and thankful for America exactly 20 years later. Now we see what's happening when the Americans depart. In other words, he was saying the lasting hope that we all crave will not endure apart from Christ. Anything else will be a false temporary hope. He goes on, the real hope I found is Jesus Christ. Afghanistan has been trying many ways to get hope, to get peace inside Afghanistan, but they have not tried Jesus Christ. They have not tried God. They have not tried his love and his mercy. And my prayer and zeal are to share Christ with them. And when they receive Christ, they will find real hope, the living hope that will never end. Again, I'm not anti-American. I'm not anti-military. I'm not a pacifist. We need our troops. I'm not, that's not a commentary on what we should have or shouldn't have done, but it is a commentary on what will change hearts, and that's Jesus Christ, who will then change nations. And that's the only hope that we have. And that hope we see, on the other hand, many Muslims are indeed coming to Christ in uh, Middle Eastern uh, countries, and we read about this all the time. Uh, Some are hearing the gospel through media ministries, the internet and radio, and while others are seeing visions and dreams of Jesus. Tom Doyle, in a book written, he's a missionary in the Muslim world, he was... uh, he told of a time when they play, currently they're placing ads in Muslim Islam uh, newspapers, and it, the message goes like this, have you seen the man in the white robe in your dreams? He has a message for you, call this number. And so by the tens of thousands, people are calling this number because they're having these dreams of the man in the white robe who is namely Jesus Christ. He said, so many Muslims have had these dreams of the man in the robe and have responded to the ads. What the Holy Spirit is doing in the Muslim world is the only real source of change for the world. And that's the source of change that we have as members of the church of Jesus Christ, as disciples of Jesus, as children of God, we have the, we belong to the only change agent that will change people and countries in our world for the, for the good, because we have the truth of Jesus Christ. Lasting freedom will never be attained through the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, through worldly power, but only through surrender to the only power that can change us, change our world. Erwin McManus wrote once again, I have so much confidence in the reality of Jesus that I feel no pressure to try to make people act or be a certain way. 
I'm banking everything on the fact that it is God who changes people. May we be a church that focuses on Christ. Amen.